The Rabbi Shmuley Podcast, very special edition tonight with Dr. Zev Zelenko, uh, who has become world famous. And um, we're getting started right now. And for those of you who are joining us on Facebook and, uh, and Instagram and Zoom across the world, uh, welcome and we're so grateful to have you. Now let me make sure that everything is happening, is everything is working. Okay, Dr. Zelenko, can you hear me? First of all, let me just say what an honor it is to have you, and uh, I, I think people need to understand and know before we even begin that you are doing this uh, this Facebook Live broadcast from your room in the hospital at Lenox Hill, where tomorrow or Thursday you're undergoing open-heart surgery. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. I mean, I can't thank you enough. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's another example of the kind of dedication that you bring to your craft, to your calling as a, as a doctor, that you're prepared to talk to us just before you yourself, that you're going to talk to us about such an important issue about the coronavirus and how we keep people healthy, just before you yourself undergoes such an important and vital operation. So I, I can't thank you enough. How are you? Before we get to anything else, let's just talk about you. How are you doing? What is the, na- if you don't mind me asking, what is the nature of your own surgery and and how, how are you? So two years ago, I was diagnosed with a pulmonary artery sarcoma, a very rare and uh, deadly tumor. And I underwent open heart surgery and lost my right lung. And they had to reconstruct my pulmonary artery. And then ever since then, I was going for surveillance CAT scans. It's been uh, two and a half years. And then last week, I went for um, another CAT scan. And unfortunately, they found a mass in my pulmonary artery attached to my pulmonic valve. And um, so I have to undergo uh, surgery to remove that valve, diseased valve, and uh, replace it with an artificial valve. So First, um, it's a very big, big surgery, especially having one lung. But you know, Mr. Shem, everything will be okay. Well, you're an incredibly positive person. First, let me say that, of course, all of us are praying for your uh, health and well being. Uh, I'm a little bit in shock hearing this. It's, it's hard for me to process all this because your family and my family recently spent time together in Pennsylvania at our friend Ted's uh, um, bed and breakfast hotel, the Chelsea uh, Sun Inn, beautiful place. I did my, my minyanim there, my prayer my prayer service with the Quorum of Ten, say kata for my late father. You participated, for which I'm so grateful. So we had fascinating conversations and we got to know each other, which is why I wanted you on, and I, I want to talk about your achievements and how many lives you've saved through the COVID-19 crisis. But for me to now hear this, uh, maybe less than two weeks after our families were together, I'm just in shock. Like, how did this happen so rapidly? Um, I don't have an answer for that, but uh, I'm just in the, the same shock as you are, believe me. <laughs> but uh, I believe that everything that God does is good, and I really do believe that. And my life experience, all the difficulties and challenges that um, I have had to go through, in retrospect, I look back at them and they were really blessings. So um, I have no doubt that no matter what the outcome will be, uh, that this is uh, the best thing for me at this point in time. Well, my my wife read your book uh, that you gave to us. I have not yet read it. She absolutely loved it. And she told me that your story is extraordinary, and she started sharing uh, tidbits with me. 
you, you know that I've been uh, preoccupied with some very important things of late, so it's been hard for me to, to get around to reading it just yet, but God willing, Leonardo, of course I will. The title of the book again is? Uh, so it's called Metamorphosis. It's, uh, it's my autobiography. Um, the truth is, it was, it was written as a, as a letter to my children. I have eight children, and um, I, was, uh, I thought I was dying two years ago. Uh, because the, the cancer that I had is 100% lethal. Uh, there's only around 10 cases a year, uh, and they were always found at autopsy, basically. And so in my particular case, uh, you know, it was found uh, incidentally, but um, nevertheless, that the prognosis was grim. So I wrote a letter to my young children that they should know who their father was, basically. And, uh, and then later, it became obvious that at least... God didn't want to see me yet, <laughs> so uh, I showed the letter to a few uh, to a few people, and they told me I should make it into a book because it carries a lot of uh, uh, power. I would say. Well, the equanimity with which you're speaking is—it's uh, kind of. I mean, the word shocking doesn't do it justice. It's—it's. Uh, it's, uh, I'm just—it's unbelievable. You're about to undergo open heart surgery. You have battled uh, cancer, what we religious Jews call Yenor Machala, that disease, because it's so horrible, we don't even want to refer to it. Maybe we should start calling coronavirus as well Yenor Machala. But you're about to do that, and the equanimity with which you approach it, and uh, I have to say, it's uh, not just admirable, but it's just uh, astonishing. Which brings me to the... I've, so, uh, sorry. I've learned over the years not to worry about things I can't control, uh, which is almost most things. I mean, the only things I could control is basically how I think and how I speak and how I act. Um, so the truth is, it really doesn't matter how a person dies. It more matters how they live. And so that's what I try to worry about. How long I'm going to live and all these things are not my department. I mean, I do, I'm, you know, I'm willing to do everything that I need to do. Open heart surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. You know, it's not like I'm not going to uh, do my part but nevertheless the 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 outcome and the uh, you know the verdict so to speak how long i'm going to be is not in my control so that's why i really learned to let go of those things and uh, make peace with uh with the mystery of life i know that your surgery is going to be successful god willing and i know that you're going to be fine and i'm asking you now when that happens, and we're and Zev Ben Leah is your Hebrew name, Zev uh, the son of Leah, and we were all I, I've been, I was putting it all over my social media last night. People have to daven for you. Thank you. Um, I'm asking you now that when you, God willing, emerge whole, and you heal fully, that you share with the world how your faith in God gives you the strength and the courage to per, to persevere. With, with such level-headedness, because it's really a gift. Because what I see right now, because you're not known for the person who is battling against cancer. This is a new thing for people who have followed you in the news over the past few months. You're known as the doctor who has promoted a certain regimen to treat the coronavirus. Uh, so this is like a new dimension of your public persona that, uh, that we're discovering tonight. And we pray for your speedy recovery. But your faith, your faith. Now, you and I were speaking over the past two days about someone who's very close to me who has the coronavirus, is very sick with the coronavirus. And uh, the, again, I saw the same thing. This, the, the calm, the, the positivity, 
uh, the inspirational nature of your doctoring. I have to say, uh, as we Jews say from the Talmud, words that emanate from the heart, penetrate the heart, I have to say to you from the heart that uh, you've moved me deeply uh, and you've touched me deeply. Uh, I've been amazed at how, uh, how caring a physician you are uh, and how your strength and courage transmits to your patients. It's quite an extraordinary thing to witness. And I see it now with you. You are your own patient right now. And um, so you have to give the rest of us direction when you come out of the hospital about how we can live with greater faith and live with greater joy and live with greater acceptance. Because what I see right now is uh, paranoia, fear, um, distress, uh, our, our country, the world, but our country, the United States, is in the grips of tremendous paranoia and fear over the coronavirus. Now, so let's talk about the coronavirus now. Is that fear, yeah. justi- is, is that fear justified? No. I have to, I'm going to speak directly to the American people and to the people of the world that I have some very good and optimistic news for you, which is the following, that there is an effective, uh, cost-effective, a safe, oral approach that if done properly, which I can explain to you how what that means, converts COVID-19 to a similar type of infection as influenza. In other words, it's not a good infection, but it's manageable, it's treatable. We don't need to close down the economy. We don't need to have unnecessary death. So if, with your permission, I would like to explain to you what I've discovered. Um, I have, I'm a primary care doctor for a community of 35,000 people in upstate New York, and they live within a square mile. And when the corona COVID-19 virus hit that community, it hit it with, with a severe number of patients, almost everyone getting sick at the same time. So my office was inundated by uh, instead of seeing 40 patients a day, we were seeing 250 patients a day. And it became very obvious to me that the world didn't know what they were doing. For example, the whole emphasis on treatment of COVID-19 was to build more respirators. Essentially, what we were telling patients is they would come to the doctor's office. We would say, okay, you have the coronavirus probably. Uh, go home, take some Tylenol, drink fluids, and when you get into uh, respiratory distress, go to the hospital, we'll intubate you, and then there's a 90% chance you're going to die. And so that didn't make sense to me. So nothing was being thought of or, or suggested to treat patients in the outpatient setting to mitigate the course of the disease, to, to improve the outcomes. You know, I have a solution for the respirator crisis. Don't get on the respirator. So what, what I started to do, I started to do research, and I looked around the, the world, what was being done. I looked into what South Korea did, which was use hydroxychloroquine and zinc. I looked into uh, France, Marseille, France. Dr. Dudier Rule was doing research with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And what I decided to do was combine the, the different regimens, different approaches from those countries. And I came up with a three drug approach. I modified the dosing to reflect less acutely ill patients. And I started intervening with my patients uh, immediately upon presentation. In other words, I didn't wait for the results of, of the testing. If the patient seemed to have COVID-19, I would 
do the testing, but I would initiate treatment immediately and not wait because the testing took three days to get back. So I'll give you an analogy. Imagine you have a fire in your kitchen and you call the fire department and they say to you, I'm going to come, we'll come in three days. That's exactly what we were doing to patients. Did it make sense? Nowhere else in medicine do we ever, oh, oh we're not going to treat your cancer until it's, until it's metastatic. Or we're not going to treat your infection in your toe until you have dead and septic. Except when it came to COVID-19, that's exactly what we were doing. Did it make sense? So I started intervening and I slowly developed what is now known actually as the Zelenko protocol, which is the following. Which has, be okay. which has become very famous as well as controversial. We'll talk about both aspects, but uh, you've become uh, world-renowned um, as so many fans and some critics debate Zelenko protocol, but let's hear what it is. Uh, and let me just say that uh, before we even get into any kind of controversy, I want to say that I've been amazed at watching you speak to someone who's very close to me with COVID-19 and your approach, which is uh, filled with compassion and uh, filled with inspiration and patience. And you understand that this disease and illness, while of course it has to be battled with all the right medications and science-based, et cetera, but it also has to be, we have to give people hope and we have to give them strength and we have to give them uh, the knowledge that that there is that there is hope. Uh, it's critical. So I witnessed that with my own eyes, and I wanted to say that before you get into this link protocol, but let's talk about it. Yes. So I published, uh, I saw 2,200 patients in my team with COVID-19 in the outpatient setting over four months. 2,200 patients, probably more than anyone else in the country, if not the world. And my outcomes are the following, and, and, and it's all documented in, in a paper that I published that we had two patients die out of 2,200. One of those patients had advanced leukemia, and the other one was elderly, and when he presented, was already very, very sick. Um, and I had four patients end up on a respirator. Now, let me give you the approach. I didn't treat everyone. I risk-stratified patients. In other words, patients that I considered high risk, uh, which I define as if you go to the hospital and you see who's dying, which patients are dying, which patients on their respirator, you'll find out very quickly it's patients over the age of 60 or patients younger, but they have medical problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, heart disease, and so on, uh, immunosuppression like you know cancer. So these are the patients that were getting um, complications from COVID-19. But everyone else was recovering on their own. So out of those 2,200 patients, I actually only treated, quote-unquote, with medication, 800 of them. In other words, the rest, um, which I considered low risk, were given supportive care, meaning go home, have some Tylenol, drink some fluids, and if something uh, doesn't, you know, if you, things don't go well, give me a call, follow up. And out of those patients, out of the, the remainder of the 1,400 patients, 100% of them survived with no hospitalizations. Now, the 800 high-risk patients over the age of 60 or under the age of 60 with medical problems, I treated with medication within the first five days of the onset of symptoms. And that's extremely important, and I'll explain to you why. If you look at the viral load dynamics, in other words, how much virus is in the patient, uh, the first five days of the onset of symptoms, it's essentially flat. It doesn't really change. 
But around day six, it explodes like a wildfire. Now, think about it. Most people don't go to the doctor right away. Someone gets sick. They wait two days usually. Then they realize, wow, it's not getting better. So they call the doctor day three. Then you don't get the appointment usually the same day. So you come to the doctor between day four and five. So I was seeing patients on average between day four and five of COVID-19. And the testing took three days to get back. That would bring them into day eight. By then, they're really sick. So what I decided to do is if I suspected that the patient had COVID-19, I would treat them on, on clinical grounds. I wouldn't wait for the results of a, of a, of a test to make a decision. In other words, I, if I thought about it, I, I treat it. And so that's the second part. In other words, the risk stratify the patients. In other words, cherry pick the high-risk patients. Initiate treatment as soon as possible. And then I use the three-drug regimen. Here, here it is. Zinc, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin. And let me explain to you how it works. It's very important. You have an intelligent audience. So uh, the virus is inside the cell. Viruses, by definition, need to hijack the cell's machinery to, to reproduce. So a virus gets inside the human cell. And there's an enzyme in the cell which helps the virus replicate. It's called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase or replicase. That's important because it turns out that zinc uh, kills that enzyme. In other words, it inhibits viral replication. But there's a big problem with zinc. Zinc does not get into the cell because, if you know biochemistry, zinc is dissolved in, in solution in the, in the plasma. It's a positive ion. And the cell membrane is lipophilic, which basically means it's like cholesterol. In other words, oil and water. So they don't mix. So the zinc cannot get into the cell. So that doesn't help you. So what does hydroxychloroquine do? All it does in this particular instance is open up. It's called a zinc ionophore. It opens up a channel that allows for the zinc to go from outside the cell to inside the cell. Very simple, very elegant. That's all it does. It's a gun and a bullet analogy. In other words, a gun without a bullet and a bullet without a gun are completely useless. It's the combination, the synergy of the two that makes it effective. So zinc needs to get to the place where the virus is. Uh, the hydroxychloroquine delivers the zinc into the cell. Now, the azithromycin, or I sometimes use doxycycline, which is antibiotic, um, what they most likely do is prevent secondary bacterial pneumonias, which are very common with people with COVID-19. So, in other words, he here's the concept. Get the virus killer inside the cell and protect the patient from developing complications by giving them antibiotics. And that's it. So, listen, this is what happened. I had, out of those 800 high-risk patients, you would have expected a 10% mortality rate. That's 80 dead people. I had two dead people. You would have expected a multiple of that on ventilators, at least 100. I had four. So I realized, I'll give you, I, I, in other words, I wasn't doing research. I was looking for a solution to keep people alive. And I'll give you an analogy. I felt like a frontline soldier who stumbled across some very important intelligence and I needed to communicate this intelligence to the five-star general in order that he has the information to win the war. So I realized the implication of what I found. So I, I don't have connections. <laughs> so I, I decided to make a YouTube video. And I didn't even know how to do that. I had to use my 17-year-old son, to, he's a millennial, to, to actually help me. And I made a video and I appealed to the president of the United States. 
And I said, Mr. President, I, I have something very important to tell you, and um, please contact me. <laughs> the next day, Mark Meadows, the president, at that time he was the incoming chief of staff, calls me on my cell phone. And he says, um, I saw your video, you know, how can I help you? What, you know, so I told him what I was seeing. And he said he's very interested and just to keep him updated. And this was early in the, in the process. So I didn't have that many patients to report. And then uh, subsequently, uh, Rudy Giuliani reached out to me. And I ended up doing a few podcasts with him. And the first podcast was seen by, I think, 800,000 people. And since then, um, I had, I'm advising currently seven countries on their COVID-19 response. For example, the entire country of Honduras is following my, the Zelenka protocol. Uh, Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, is a big fan of my social media, and he just recently got COVID-19. He took the, the protocol, and he's doing great. And, and large sections of Brazil are now so wait, uh, coming so, on so board. So President Bolsonaro took the Zelenka protocol when he got COVID-19? Correct. So let's just go back for a second. I, I want to get, because the politics is going to muddy the waters just a little bit, because hydroxychloroquine has become so deeply politicized for reasons that I can't quite fathom. Well, uh, I can clarify you, know, well you and I have talked about it, but, but let's not jump the gun because people have not been privy to our conversations. So, first of all, what you've said until now makes a lot of sense to me because I've seen people get very sick on, um, with uh, COVID-19, and I've seen that they have become unnecessarily sick, meaning I'm not a doctor. And I know my limitations, I'm not a doctor. But I also know that when people first thought, people that I knew, first thought they had symptoms and went to a primary care physician or an emergency room, uh, and e even if they were told by a doctor, you know what, I think that you have COVID-19, here, let's do a test. And now, of course, the tests, you don't get an answer for four or five days. And I've seen that what you're saying is correct. What a tragedy. They're getting unnecessarily sick because they're not being given anything. Without the Zelenko protocol, if someone goes to an emergency room and they say, look, we think you have COVID-19, take a test, you take a test. Now we have to wait three, four days to see if you're positive or negative. What do they give them then? Nothing? Nothing. Nothing. Zero. Nothing. Right. So we're just creating a situation where high-risk patients can get extremely sick, God forbid, and be forced to fight for their lives, which is preventable. That's what you're saying, right? That's a really serious thing. My data shows the following. If you follow my protocol, my data showed an 84% reduction in hospitalization. Let me, let me explain to you what that means. Out of 100,000 admissions in the hospital, we could have prevented 84,000 of them. With a drug, by the way, which is safe and costs $20 and is oral by mouth. Do you, do you understand the implications of what I'm saying to you? Uh, let me clarify it if you don't. I, if I, you, un I understand you, the implications because this is, this, this is directly impacting. If you scale um, this approach, no, here's the implications though. If you scale this approach nationally or globally, that's the end of the pandemic. My survival rate in patients, my death rate in patients, high-risk patients was point. 7%. In other words, 99.3% survived. You would have expected 10% to die. So instead of 10% of dying, I had 0.7% dying. Do you understand what that implication? A death rate a reduction of more than 90%. Because, because you're using a protocol 
which is preemptive in nature. You're trying to help people before it gets really... Listen, exactly. I, I'm, I'm not at liberty to quote some very significant medical names with whom I've discussed your protocol because I don't have their permission. I wish I, you and I organized this, uh, uh, this discussion very quickly, Zeb, because you weren't feeling well and you had your surgery, so we decided to move it forward, um, which was a good decision because what you're saying is so important. I want people to hear it. But I didn't have uh, the opportunity to go to a very significant medical name and ask for his permission to quote him on what he's told me. But he kind of agrees with you uh, fully that you're, that the idea that we're giving people absolutely nothing when they show the, the symptoms of coronavirus, if they are high risk, means that we're putting their lives at risk unnecessarily. And that really is a tragedy. And there's someone very close to me who went through that, and your, um, your protocol, uh, I'm sure, would have been very helpful. And that's what so upsets me, that you go to an emergency room and you have these symptoms and you're high risk and they just send you home, which is the dumbest thing without giving you... I mean, it makes no sense because this, this could be a killer disease and it, mm -hmm. and it is a killer disease. I mean, I say can be because, it, you know, like you said, it, it affects high-risk patients much more. It is a killer disease. It's killed 150,000 Americans. It's killed 150,000 uh, Americans. It's killed hundreds of thousands more around the world. And I want to know what we can do to save their lives. That's what I want to know. So, I have my neighbor here in the, in the hospital. Okay. So, so Zev, so the Zelenko protocol. So, what you explained to us thus far, before we get into Bolsonaro or President Trump or any uh, any of uh, any of the political figures, zinc can stop the virus from replicating. Is that correct? If it gets into the cells. Correct. Okay, but you and you need that hydroxychloroquine to get the zinc into the cells. Correct. So I asked this world-famous, you've now become world-famous as well, but I asked this world-famous medical authority, and I said, why is hydroxychloroquine so incredibly uh, controversial? Why are they saying to give you a heart arrhythmias, et cetera? So he said to me, well, I really don't know. He said to me that, hydrox and I'm not a doctor, but he said that hydroxychloroquine has been a malaria drug for 70-odd years, and it was seen as a safe drug. And he told me that in many countries in the third world, it's even sold over-the-counter. Is that, is that correct? It is correct, yes. So, so has it become just po completely politicized? I mean, because hydroxychloroquine is dividing the country almost as deeply as masks are. And why? Why is that? So hydroxychloroquine has been around for 65 years. It's given to pregnant women. It's given to nursing mothers. It's given to children. It's used for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, malaria, and malaria prophylaxis. Um, it's currently being used by millions of people. I asked the, there are 3,000 electrophysiologists in America. Um, electrophysiologist, a cardiologist that deal with rhythm issues of the heart. And that was the whole concern with hydroxychloroquine, that there's a theoretical risk that it may cause arrhythmias. So they have their own like WhatsApp group. So someone I know, a friend of mine, he asked the question, has anyone seen any hydroxychloroquine related deaths? Um, and the answer was zero caveat in the outpatient setting. They were in the ICU, intensive care unit. And, but that's fine. I mean, I, I wasn't advocating for its use in the ICU. My, if my patient is in the intensive care unit, I didn't do my job. So 
but there was zero in the setting that I was recommending. All this fear mongering, you know, we're up to almost 150,000 dead Americans. So the hypocrisy, the stupidity, you ask anyone who's fear mongering, ask them just simple numbers. What percentage are you, what are the stats that you're referring, that you're a puppet, puppeting information that you didn't even know? So you have to ask yourself, why are they doing it? Right, right. But hydroxychloroquine, I have no, uh, I have no dog in this fight. I don't have, uh, I have no dog in this fight. I, I couldn't, before someone who I'm very close to, I mean, I've seen so many people get sick with COVID-19, but, but someone I'm very close to got sick. And uh, it changes your perspective completely because then you begin to wonder, God Almighty, was this preventable? And your entire protocol is preventive in nature. Uh, it's a prophylactic, essentially, correct? To, to, to make sure that we don't get very sick with COVID-19. So why, how has this become so politicized? How has a drug that has been considered safe for 65 years, how has it become a drug that is dividing America? And if it's not being administered, it could be very, uh, it, could, it could save many lives. You're saying it could save so many lives. Just four reasons. Politics, money, arrogance, and fear. Let me explain. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, it's a matter of public record, made an announcement that he believes hydroxychloroquine is part of the solution uh, in this pandemic. Um, he actually happens to be right. Now, without this has nothing to do with my political views. It's just a political analysis. Now, this is a, we're a few months away from probably one of the most uh, crucial presidential elections in the history of this country, or at least in my lifetime. And half of the country is, does not want the president to win, which is fine. We're in a democracy. Let's have our debates and then and, and go and vote. But what's happened is since the president came out in support of hydroxychloroquine, and if it turns out, which it is, Part of the solution that is a huge political win for the president right before a crucial election. So there are forces in this country who literally would prefer to see the economy burn and a percentage of the population to die rather than to give the president a win right before an election. That's number one. That's my political analysis. Number two, uh, the big pharmaceutical companies like Gilead Pharmaceuticals, for example, um, makes a drug called remdesivir. Remdesivir has been shown to reduce hospitalizations by one-third, in other words, and that was the basis of its emergency use authorization, that on average patients were in the hospital for 15 days. If they received remdesivir, the number of days they were in the hospital was 10. So, okay, that's significant. A reduction in hospitalization by a third. Great. However, my approach reduces the need for hospitalization by 84%. In other words, each um, dose or each treatment course of remdesivir is $3,200, and it's IV. So if you reduce, my approach basically reduces remdesivir's market share, Gilead's market share, by 84%. We're talking about a trillion dollars. So you don't think uh, people who have a financial conflict of interest are going to try to uh, preserve their profit margin? But let, but, but let me just be clear. You don't have an, any issue with remdesivir, and you accept 
the clinical studies that show that it reduces a hospital stay by a third, 15 days to 10 days, which is very, which is very significant. You're just saying that remdesivir should be used when people get very sick and you endorse its use. But you're correct. saying let's try to stop that from ever happening in the first place, correct? I mean, that's, that's obvious. In other words, there's three stages to this disease. There's the stage one where the patient is in the primary care doctor's office. Stage two, when they're in the hospital. Stage three is when they're half dead on a respirator. I'm recommending treat patients in stage one and prevent them from going to the hospital. If for some reason they end up in the hospital, then use remdesivir, sure. Okay, but, so wait, but of, of the three parts of the Zelenko protocol, I understand two, I mean, to the best of my ability. Hydroxychloroquine is like this, as you say, it's like a gun that fires this bullet into the cells. The bullet is zinc, and zinc... Uh, helps to stop the propagation of the virus as it enters the cells. Is that correct? And what is the third part of the protocol? It's a bulletproof vest for the patient that prevents the patient from developing pneumonia. Pneumonias. Okay. And what's what's that called? Zipac azithromycin. Okay. And that's an antibiotic. Correct. Okay. There that's are others good. also. You can use doxycycline, whatever. But the idea is to to reduce the risk of developing bacterial pneumonia. Okay. Um, I, I don't understand why your protocol is at all controversial. I actually think it's laudable. So people are going to say, well, Shmuel, you're not a doctor. Um, you're, you don't have the knowledge. My response is, I've discussed this with competent doctors, many of whom are treating COVID-19 patients on, on a large scale. They actually, I'm amazed at how behind the scenes people praise you one world-renowned physician told me that your quote, that he said to me, Zelenko is a, is a force for good throughout America. Another one who deals with a lot of COVID-19 patients, not world-famous, but an extremely competent doctor, said to me um, that uh, I actually believe in the Zelenko protocol and I've been prescri uh, prescribing it myself. Why are people telling me this only quietly? Why are they saying it under their breath? So you, sir, telling me, that there's political reasons to repudiate or to discredit your protocol because you're saying it could give President Trump a victory. Okay, um, that's very possible that there's politics and money involved. Money, I'm sure, you know, big pharma, etc. But most of the physicians that I'm talking about are actually good people. They're reputable. They may have their own political convictions. Everybody does. But I don't think that they would politicize this illness. They seem to be a little bit scared about embracing, Zev, your protocol. Why? Do they feel that you're, that you're seen as too close to the White House? Do they think that you're seen as President Trump gave, a, well, I think it was a news conference, and he said that a very nice man wrote to me from, uh, I think he said Westchester, about taking um, hydroxychloroquine. He then announced that he's taking hydroxychloroquine, and that nice person was you. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, uh, so that he, was you. He announced that he was taking hydroxychloroquine and zinc, and he said that he received a letter from a doctor somewhere about uh, Westchester or, or around there somewhere and telling, telling him, Mr. President, I'm seeing really good results with this. Uh, please, I just want you to know. And then he said he didn't even want to have dinner with me. He just didn't want anything. He just wanted to let me know. Um, yeah, so, that, so, so, yeah. so, that, 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 so that, that's not that, why. Doctors are no, but, afraid. But, but, okay, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. There's a, there's a fear element because there are state regulations now by in New York and Nevada, Michigan, and there's a few other states where doctors are being sanctioned for using these medications. 
they're being vilified. Their credentials, their livelihoods are being uh, put at risk. If they, if they, if they prescribe the zinc and the not Dox the zinc, the hydroxychloroquine. The hydroxychloroquine. Okay. It's, in other words, it used to be that the doctor-patient relationship was sacred. Let's say you're my patient. You come to me. I tell you, listen, Shmuley, I think you would benefit from hydroxychloroquine. You would think about it and say, okay, I agree. And I would give you the prescription. You would go to the pharmacy and take it. Now the government comes and says, no, we know better. We're going to intervene. So what's really happened is that the government has intruded into that which is sacred, the doctor-patient relationship. This is the really the definition of tyranny. Okay. So but, physicians but, 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 are sorry, afraid. Yes. Physicians are afraid to use these medications because of the their professional liability associated with that. They're afraid to be sued. They're afraid to lose it. their license. Interesting. Okay. So there. So therefore, when I raise your name with doctors with whom I'm friendly or acquainted, some of whom are world renowned and some of whom are uh, just extremely competent professionals who are dealing who are treating COVID-19 patients. They have all, you know, one by one, they all kind of, uh, some praise you, uh, some don't go as far as praising you, but they endorse you. Only one so far has really criticized you to me, um, and that, he said, was based on, you know, something completely different. Okay, uh, so I've seen the controversy, but part of it also is that you started to mention uh, President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil and President Donald Trump of the United States of America, our president. These leaders are seen by some, and I, I don't want to politicize even our conversation. I really want to get to the truth because I care about saving lives. I, I, I truly do. And I know you do. And that's why I respect you so much. I've seen it. I'm, I'm a first-hand witness to how much you care about saving lives. And I'm grateful because there's someone that I'm very close to who you've uh, tried to be very helpful to, and I, I'm very grateful. Um, the problem is that these leaders are seen by the public, many see them, many in the public see them as having been, let's say, callous about the COVID-19 crisis, that they didn't lock down their countries enough or they gave conflicting advice. So for, so for example, President Trump has his uh, supporters, he has his detractors. His supporters say he identified the threat early and shut down uh, international travel from China, Europe, etc. His detractors say, what a mess, the United States uh, is I think eighth in the world in the mortality rate. This became a debate between Chris Wallace and the president in the uh, Fox News Sunday uh, interview this past Sunday. Um, but I looked it up myself. I saw the Johns Hopkins things, and I, you know, we're, we're, we are with Iran and Pakistan and countries like that. The mortality rate. So the president has these trackers. I'm not agreeing with them. Uh, this is a president that I happen to have a lot of uh, personal gratitude to for his phenomenal support of the Jewish people and the state of Israel through a time of rampant, absolutely vile, disgusting anti-Semitism, which is rearing its head throughout the world. But looking at the coronavirus, when you start, call, start quoting how your, you know, Bolsonaro himself is taking the Zelenka protocol, and he seems to be okay, thank God, but other people are saying that Bolsonaro was callous about, about Brazil, and they have runaway mortality and runaway infections, and the United States can't get this under control, and we thought that it was going to kind of be under control. So when you become associated with political leaders whose response to the coronavirus, justified or unjustified, is uh, controversial, does that also make you controversial? COVID-19 kills Republicans and Democrats equally. 
Um, it's irrelevant to me, politics. It's not what I'm focusing on. I'm focusing on the sanctity of human life. Every human being is made in the image of God. They have a spark of divinity in them. Their soul is, is precious. And that's not, it's the basis of natural law and uh, human rights. So as such, my focus is uh, preserving all life as much as possible, um, mitigating complications and suffering and misery. So it has nothing to do with politics. Right. So what, what, how people perceive it, I don't know. But um, that's irrelevant to me. Are you the and, one, is ever you the one who made hydroxychloroquine so incredibly famous, especially in the United States? Are you the one who promoted it more than any other? Because I, like before COVID-19, I obviously, I had never heard of hydroxychloroquine, I don't think. Now I hear about it everywhere. Are, are you the one? I was missing it 10 days before the president mentioned it. And I've been the most vocal uh, proponent of using hydroxychloroquine and zinc. I'm going to keep on using the zinc because people forget and the azithromycin because I saw um, I saw it work in the field. I saw it work. Um, I was basically six months ahead of everyone else because if you notice all the studies that were being done, they were being done on the ICU patients, on the sickest of the sickest patients. No one was focusing, and actually even still, no one's focusing on developing treatment strategies in the outpatient setting. By the way, I'm not saying my treatment is the best. All I'm saying is my treatment is the only treatment. Right. right. No, no, I, I, even someone who isn't a doctor, see, I want to be very careful in this conversation. I want to speak to issues where I have credibility. And on medical issues, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a lot of credibility. I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. You have tremendous credibility because, as you said, you've, treated 2,200 patients who had COVID-19. Um, again, I want to emphasize that I'm speaking from a first-hand witness to how you uh, deal with patients who are ill with COVID-19. But um, I'm also shocked that there is nothing to help those who develop symptoms who are in high-risk categories who should have been helped before they got sick. That shocks me. I mean, that is just shocking. So what, how do your critics respond to that? Like you, what you just said was very humble. You said, well, I'm not saying that mine is the best protocol. Mine is the only protocol. Why aren't there at least even others? And, wh and why aren't there others? How's that, how is that possible? So let me tell you how, how deep this goes. In the beginning of this year, the New England Journal published a study that concluded the following, that only clinical trial data in other words, data that's derived through clinical trials is considered valid, and uh, real-world evidence is considered anecdotal and is not valid. So basically what, what happened, that there, who runs clinical trials? Essentially, it's big institutions, it's the Fauci types, and they're being supported by companies like Gilead. For example, there was a Lancet study which was published that showed that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective and maybe even kills people. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, used that study as a basis to come out with a global recommendation against the use of hydroxychloroquine. Subsequently, this study was found to be fraud. It was fraudulent and had to be retracted. And if you look at the top right corner of that study, it says sponsored by Gilead Pharmaceuticals. So all of a sudden, what's happened is that there is a monopoly about who 
claims to have truth. It's, it's the, the small, narrow um, people that run clinical trials who have established themselves as the, uh, of the priests of truth. However, what really has happened, they've b- become corrupted. The medical peer-reviewed research process is diseased. There's no, it's not about truth anymore. It's about expressing a, spe- a specific narrative. So let me ask you a question. Do I need a clinical trial to know that I, parachutes are a good thing when you jump out of a plane? Should I randomize it and send 10 people out of the plane without a parachute and see what happens? Or it's obvious that you need a parachute, and I don't need to do that. Or I'll give you another example. What if I'm drowning in the ocean, and all of a sudden I see a piece of driftwood? I don't have a clinical trial that's going to say that it may save me, but I have nothing else. So you don't think I'm going to hold on to it? I may get a splinter, but at least I won't die. I'll give you another example. Imagine Washington, D.C. is being carpet bombed. And would it make sense for Dr. Fauci to say, well, we need to do a clinical trial to see which bullets are the best. And it may take three, four months. And then once we figure out, we're going to use them. Or would it make sense to use the best available bullets at this point in time to shoot down the planes, do research in parallel, and if you develop something better, transition to the use of that. Wouldn't that make sense? So why is it, why is it that you have a cheap, safe, effective option to treat COVID-19 in the outpatient setting with an 84% reduction in hospitalization and a survival rate in high-risk patients of 99.3% when you would expect a 10% mortality, why is it not being implemented while we do the research? So that's where the arrogance comes in. It's, 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 you, said, uh, you said politics, money, that's where the arrogance comes in. And there was one more reason you said. Fear. Physicians are afraid. They're afraid of being sued. Losing their credentials. It's hard to become a doctor. It takes a minimum of 11 I'm, years. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very upset. Uh, as an American, as a person, you know I'm, what? Let me. I'm, let me I'm, I'm very upset. Let me not people, words. No, I, I'm actually very upset that when I, because I've seen people who had early symptoms, who then got very sick when they really, I, I just know. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I just know that something should have been done to try to prevent the spread of the disease before they got very sick. Like you said, the way we in the New York metropolitan area where I live. Uh, dealt with uh, this, we were hit with this tsunami of infections in March, April, now thank God it's getting better. You're correct. The way we dealt with it was to run around the country and get as many ventilators as possible. And, uh, you know, that was very important. I'm not knocking it at all. I was very impressed how much we value life and get the ventilators, etc. But no one said, let's first and foremost ensure that we don't get people on ventilators. Well, now, that's not really true. Let me be fair. They did say, let's social distance. Let's make sure that we don't, you know, we have to be a part now so we can be together later and I'm in favor of that where it's where it's necessary and to be honest because we don't have a lot of time tonight we can't really debate the merit of the lockdowns where the school should reopen etc these are all very critical issues and I'd like to do a part two where we can talk about that how how severe should the lockdowns be in the quarantines and should the schools reopen and I know that you're very opinionated on that and that this was very important but that's a whole separate discussion the only preventative measures that we were told to enforce, let's say here in New York, where we were really hit by it, was, of course, uh, separation and quarantine and lockdowns. I, I, I get it. 
But those who did get the virus, they weren't given any, if they were high risk, they weren't given any protocol to take, right? That could have maybe stopped them from getting very sick and we could have saved their lives. That, that bothers me tremendously. We are witnessing and living through, because we, we don't have yet the perspective of history, but this could be considered crimes against humanity, mass murder, and perhaps even genocide. Genocide against the vulnerable. Well, Zev, I, 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 uh, first of all, I, I have deep respect for you, and I'm amazed that you're even doing this discussion on the hospital. I, I personally have to disagree with the word genocide only because I'm very involved in genocide um, memory and genocide prevention, and genocide presupposes that there's an enemy who's going to slaughter an ethnicity and try to eradicate an ethnicity. Like you said before, COVID-19, first of all, COVID-19 is blind. It's a, it's, it's a pathogen, but you said it, it has no borders. It's not trying to attack black or white or Protestant, or, or Irish, or American, or deep. Jewish. It attacks the most vulnerable. Correct. In New York State. Correct. It goes after the most vulnerable. And in that sense, it's almost like a mullet, you know, uh, if you want to use biblical references. But again, there, there is, there is conscious, willful choice on the part, in, 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 in genocide, on the part of some evil perpetrator or murderer that's going to kill a victim. We don't have to call it genocide to still speak about how awful this there was is. a 50% death rate in nursing homes in New York. Well, that was an insane decision on the part of governors to put COVID-19 patients into... Listen, a willful I, decision. Right, okay. But I don't think they did it because they wanted to kill people, God forbid. I'm not going to accuse them of that. I think what they did was... I don't know what words to use. Uh, irresponsible, that's not strong enough. Murder, that's too strong, I feel. There's something in between. Manslaughter? I'm sorry? Manslaughter? Could be, could be. Listen, I have a very good friend whose mother died in a nursing home. She was perfectly healthy. I saw her a month before she died, and she got COVID-19 when they brought COVID-19 patients to her nursing home, and she, and she died. And this is uh, someone who's liberal and, and more left-leaning, and they're shocked and outraged to their core that a Democratic governor did this. It's not about politics. I agree with you. Listen, Zev, if I didn't feel that what you're saying and what you're doing is critical, and important, and if I didn't feel that you could really be, in, which, which you are, thank God, an enormous force for saving lives, uh, I wouldn't be discussing this with you, and I wouldn't be asking you to, to have this discussion two nights before you have open heart surgery. We're gonna have to Do you know how much bloodshed I saw? Do you know how much suffering and unnecessary death that I saw? The, the misery, the, I, I had a, uh, listen to this, I had a patient from actually Montreal, uh, calls me up, pregnant woman, late 20s, she's like seven months pregnant, she has COVID, she asks me if she could take uh, the protocol. I said, absolutely. She goes to her doctor, the doctor refuses to give it to her. Two days later, she has two major strokes, has a pulmonary infarct, loses her baby, and is still on the ventilator two months later. That's a, that's a truly tragic story. And as you said, preventable. How, and you can scale that by a thousand. How, how, how is she? She's on a ventilator. She's, she's brain dead. So. Um, to, to even hear this is too painful because I, I, I also, I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor. I've said that repeatedly, but I've, as a rabbi, I've been consulted count, on countless occasions about COVID-19 tragedies. And uh, honestly, sometimes the grief is so overwhelming that, that one becomes punch drunk. You become almost senseless. You, Let me tell you, there's, there's some other pandemics going on. A pandemic of suicide right now. There's diseases of despair, the, a pandemic of child abuse. 
I speak to emergency room doctors. They're seeing an incredible amount of child abuse, spousal abuse. And there are people and, and, dying. And do you mean collateral. this is happening because of the paranoia, or because of the fear, because of the? I mean, well, the, the COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen is real. Your one message tonight is, COVID nineteen is real. It it it's a killer, but it's preventable. There's so much that can be prevented. Uh, that's that's your simple. message. I don't want people no. to misconstrue your message that this isn't a, a killer disease, that we should grow um, complacent about it, because we dare not grow complacent about it. What you're saying is that there should be a protocol in place that when people first show symptoms, or if they think they have it, where high-risk patients can take your protocol, the Zelenka protocol, and we can, God willing, stop them from getting very sick and having to go on to, uh, to a ventilator, which has been the strategy until now. Have enough ventilators, correct? Have I summed that up correctly? Let me make it very simple. When COVID-19 is in the sinuses and in the nose, it is extremely easy to eradicate. The second it goes down into the lungs, that's when the blood clots happen. That's where the catastrophic lung injury happens. That's when people get very sick. The key is get rid of it when it's here and don't let it go here. Well, for that, we need more testing, and we need tests that we don't have to wait three, four days for. What happens no, to you that? don't need testing. All you need is a brain. You need clinical sense. They're, it's so easy well, to what, diagnose. What do you need to we're, we're, we're running out of time. Let me ask you. So, okay, you, need, you said you need a brain and you need sense. What, tell us practically speaking. People are watching right now. They might have sniffles. They might start feeling like uh, some of the symptoms they've read about uh, taste. Let me smell. give you the symptoms. It's very simple. It's flu-like, uh, high fever cough. Here's something very important. Loss of smell and taste. Very few other things actually cause that. You can have diarrhea, you can have back aches, and so on. Now, it's not flu season, right? If you come down with this, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that you probably have COVID. If you want, go to the doctor, let them do a flu test. The flu test is going to be negative. So then what do you have? Let's say you were exposed to COVID. I mean, it's just common sense. And by the way, you can always stop treatment, right? Do the test. And you're saying, you're saying of all the symptoms, you think that loss of smell and taste is the most significant because almost nothing else is associated with right. that? It's pathognomonic. That's what it means. It's, essentially, that's diagnostic of COVID. Okay. Listen, Zev, uh, we're running, we're, we've kind of run out of time. We've actually gone beyond the time. But uh, what you're saying is so important. I want people to hear it. First of all, let me tell you from the heart, I want to thank you personally for the, for the assistance you've rendered to me and helping uh, uh, deal with uh, someone who's unwell, who's close to me. I'm very grateful. Secondly, I want to thank you for all the lives that you've saved um, and how you've put yourself at risk because you yourself, uh, as you said, you, you lost a lung, correct, uh, due to, to cancer and you were still treating 2,200 um, COVID-19 patients. So thank you for all the lives that you saved. My team. Third, yeah. uh, third, your team. Third, thank you for your friendship, your uh, incredible faith in God, uh, how you wear your faith on your sleeve, which I uh, champion, salute, admire, and respect. Uh, and thank you also for fighting the, the fight to ensure that there's a protocol at, the, at early stages to save lives before people get very sick. I don't have to be a physician to know that there has to be a protocol. And I think it's amazing to me that your critics, let them at least come up with what the alternative is. But um, I, I want to thank you for highlighting how 
serious this has become that we're not trying to stop the disease in its earliest stages. And I've seen too many people suffer and people die, and uh, I'm just kind of shocked, in shock. Now, my father, who died two months ago, um, he did not die of COVID-19. He didn't have the coronavirus. He might as well have died of COVID-19 because it was our inability to really visit him in the hospital once they locked down the hospitals after he had had a catastrophic stroke a few months before that made us decide that, you know, we couldn't really keep him in the hospital any longer. We were trying to do everything we could to get him out. If we could have continued to visit him and be with him and, and sing to him and hold his hand, you know, things might have turned out very differently. But, be, but the lockdowns, made, we began to feel like he's just being warehoused and, um, and bed sores and, and, and mouth sores and all these horrible things. And, and his children can't even be around him. So I have seen, you know... Um, collateral damage. Yes, the collateral damage. I mean, I'm, I'm saying Kaddish for my father. You, you, you and your son were part of my minion. And uh, anyway. I, I want to end, Rabbi Shmuley. First of all, your father is the Shema Shagab and Thank you. He has a lot of schosun. Thank you. But I, I want to say, again, I'm going to speak directly to the American people and to the President of the United States. American people, we have hope. There is light here. There's a cheap, affordable, very effective and safe approach that could really convert COVID-19 into a, a manageable infection. And Mr. President, you are about to get, there's gonna be an election. You need to reassure and reduce the anxiety of the American people by instilling hope. You can reopen the economy and we can manage this infection effectively. Well, Zev, um, God willing, when you emerge uh, healthy and strong from your surgery, uh, and that will happen in the next few days, God willing, we're all praying for you, Zev and Leah, and I will personally be, be davening for you. I want to do a part two where we talk about your views on, you know, should we be reopening? And I'm, I'm you know, although I live in New Jersey, I'm from Miami. My whole family is, still is in Miami, and Miami has been hit, you know, uh, so hard. Uh, I'm shocked to see what's happening in Miami Beach, where my mother lives, my brother, my sisters, uh, and my nephews and nieces. So I want to talk about all those things, and the schools, which is an extremely uh, controversial uh, issue. President Trump has said that he might even deny federal funding to schools that don't reopen. Uh, my dear friend Dr. Oz spoke about the schools reopening even, you know, whatever it was, six, six weeks ago, maybe more, and he was absolutely vilified. I want to talk about that. But I want to save that for when you're better, and we'll do that in the next few days. But... Let me conclude by saying that God be with you. You should get through this. Uh, I say this with all my heart. That God be with you and you should uh, be strong and the uh, surgery should be extremely successful because humanity needs you. The Jewish people need you. The American people need you. Your family needs you. I need you. And Hashem should watch you and keep you and bless you in every way. Amen, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you so much and for the kind words. And Rafu Shlema. God bless you, Dr. Zelenko. God bless you. God bless you.